You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners, or shall I say, good evening. Because it is Sunday evening, after all, and here we are, you and I together. Here's the deal, okay? So normally I play the audio off of the web stream from Sunday morning. I make a few remarks and we're off to the races, but... There is no race to be off to today. If you were trying to join us this morning, it's Sunday evening now, if you're trying to join us this morning on the web stream, you know there was no joining. Um, There was about five minutes of web stream, and the reasons are very technical. Uh, Actually, just the the Wi-Fi died. The Wi-Fi just went completely bye-bye, Wi-Fi bye-bye, and we were not able to web stream our service, which I am here to tell you was a bummer. Because it was a great service. Rachel and Walesse Fa'agutu and the worship team were on. And the people were on. And the message, uh, preaching wasn't bad. It was okay. But the whole service as a package was just fantabulous. I was bummed to discover that so many of you were not able to join us online. So here we are. I could do one of two things. I could, like videotape me teaching the message, but I don't know that there's really a market for that. Like who wants to sit and watch me teach? So I just decided to go ahead and teach it kind of podcast style, reteach it this evening, be a little bit more abbreviated, I would say. Uh, but I think you'll get the gist of it. What I wanted to do though, was to get out this chunk of the first John series. We're on first John three and uh, one and two tied together so well. Here we are at three. I just did not want to leave it hanging, especially for those of you who normally follow us on Sunday mornings. I'm, I'm sorry for that. I apologize. It didn't work. I'm here to tell you it will never happen again. Although I really have no confidence that that's true. I mean, it seems like a grandiose pledge, but, um, it could, but I'm going to try for it not to happen again. However, for this week, anyway, you will hear most of the message. I don't know that the whole thing's going to fit into a podcast, but you'll get the idea of what you missed this morning when the Wi-Fi went bye-bye. So with that, grab a Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to get with it. Now, I would like to tell you that this will be a pristine recording and you will hear nothing in the background. I would say uh, there's about a 0% chance of that. I've got kids upstairs. I've got dogs running around. So who knows what you're going to hear in the Bolander home as I go to teach through this. But looking at 1 John chapter 3, part 3 of a five-part series where we are challenged by John to understand some very distinct contrasts. Okay, In the past few weeks, we have compared light to darkness in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, we've compared the love of the world and the ability to express the love of God to other people. Everybody reads chapter 2, and you think it talks about love of the world versus the love for God. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about our love for the world, which will cause us to have an inability to love other people with the love of God. I was listening earlier this week to John Tyson speak. John is the pastor of church in the city in New York City. And he makes the comment that if you ask a believer in his church, and I'm sure in in the bridge and probably most any church nationwide, what do you want out of life? What do you really want? Most believers will say something like, well, I want a little more money for the work than I'd be willing to do for it. You know, if it's uh, 
you'll pay me 60, but I'd be willing to do it for 50. That's a win. I'd like a dynamic spouse, like a couple of kids, maybe a retirement plan that doesn't leave me freaked out in my 50s because I have no retirement plan. That's what you would get if you asked most believers, what do you want out of life? If you ask a non-believer, what do you want out of life? They will tell you, well, you know, a job with a little more money than I'd be willing to do for it, a dynamic spouse, a couple of kids, maybe a retirement plan. It's the same thing. They're asking and desiring the same thing. Now, none of those desires are really wrong, and there's actually a bit of nobility in those desires. But when our primary concern, what we really want out of life, is related to our own comfort, we have succumbed to the woo of the world, and we have lost our ability to love others above ourselves. Now, that's all chapter two thinking, and we are not going back to chapter two. We are moving on to chapter three. Chapter 3 of 1 John. Have you ever gone on an airplane and thought, these seats are getting closer together? They really are. If you remember, if you're old enough to be flying in the 80s, seats were further apart. There was a lot of things were different about airplanes in the 80s. There was a smoking section on an airplane in the 80s. So it was a mixed experience, but there were more space between the seats. Who decided to make the seats on airplanes so crowded? It's not the FAA. The Federal Aviation Administration regulates aviation and U.S. commercial space transportation, air traffic control, navigation systems. What they do not regulate is how close the seats are. Now, because of that, rows have grown increasingly crowded to the point that an aircraft the size of a 737 has six more rows of seats today than it would have a decade ago. Now, why? Because six rows of seats with three seats on each side at $300 a ticket means about $12,000 for a full flight. It's a lot of peanuts, which, by the way, they're no longer giving you either. And everyone complains. Nobody likes it. So the airline discovered that if they made a few rows up front that were the old size, they could call that business class and charge more people for enjoying what used to be normal. The travel and the hospitality industry makes big money on making people comfortable. People will pay for that. Nobody likes being uncomfortable. People are motivated by comfort. They will commit their time and their money to comfort. There are, however, areas of life where discomfort or hunger is all that moves you, primarily in your spirit, man. Do not resist discomfort internally. It's probably Jesus calling because Jesus has the ability to both welcome you and make you uncomfortable all at once. Jesus was a bit of a paradox in a sense, because he was always welcoming, wasn't he? Come unto me, all who are heavy laden. Come, bring the children. But he didn't always make people comfortable. Sometimes just an understanding of who he was made people squirm. People were at once drawn to him and made uncomfortable by him. Once Jesus was teaching people, and he borrowed Peter's boat to kind of row out a little bit from the shore. When he was all done, as if to say thanks, Jesus sends Peter and the boys back out to dip the nets one more time. And Peter tells him, you know, we fished all night. There's really nothing out there, but eh, if you say so. And of course, they're inundated with fish. The combination of the teaching and the miraculous has a curious effect on Peter. He is uncomfortable. In Luke 5, 8, it says this, that when Simon Peter saw it or saw the fish in the net, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So Jesus was loving, 
but he was also the living truth, and the power innate in his being made people extremely nervous. And John the Beloved, who writes First John, resonates with that style of communication. John does not work for the hospitality industry. When it comes to teaching, John is a little bit like Jesus. He's kind, but he's confronting. And he manages to focus on 1 John chapter 3 on the idea of making people uncomfortable, not to afflict them, but to challenge them to live a life more like Jesus. I personally would prefer an uncomfortable truth to a comfortable lie any day. Now, because John writes in a bit of a circular fashion, remember he's in his 90s here. We said a few weeks ago, he writes a little bit like your grandpa talks and he goes around in circles. I'm going to take some liberty in the order of the chapter because he opens with a firecracker, then he makes some other observations. I'd rather flip the script a little bit, look at what he says in the latter portion before focusing on what seems to be a great contrast or opposite in 1 John 3. If you have your Bibles open, drop down to verse 10, and we will uh, circle back, as they say, to the top in a little bit. In verse 10, he starts with a really uncomfortable reality. It's true, but it's disconcerting to think about. When he tells us that our behavior reflects our lineage. Of course, the great debate in science is, why do we act the way we act? Or, more appropriately, why do other people act the way? Why are you like that? Were you raised to be that way? Were you born to be that way? Did you learn your behavior, or do you carry it innately within you? John teaches that, spiritually speaking, your behavior reflects whose child you are. And he gets very specific about that behavior. First John chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are children of God, and who are children of the devil. Forget for a moment this is on the written page. Imagine if this was set around the dining room table. Bring that up at Thanksgiving. By what I'm about to tell you, you will be able to tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. People would squirm. But again, he's aiming not for comfort. He's aiming for clarity. When life and death are on the line, clarity is kindness. In Matthew 25, Jesus says when he returns, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Right now, John is getting ready to separate the sheep from the goats while there is still time for goats to pursue sheep status. There's still time to change. By telling people what makes them children of God or children of the devil, while change is possible, John is being clear, but he's being really kind. Because there's coming a time when the sheep and the goats will be forever what they are. Many people say the most significant song that Johnny Cash ever recorded was late in his career, was the last original song that he recorded, a song called The Man Comes Around. It is positively apocalyptic. It is one scriptural reference after another. And he shares a line or two out of Revelation 22. And part of it is just the fact that it's Johnny Cash's voice. Johnny Cash could read the phone book and it'd be a little bit scary. But he reads a version of Revelation 22:11 that is sobering. That passage says, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. That's a little terrifying. John is declaring who is who before that time comes, though, and change is still possible. The best news I can possibly give you today is you are not necessarily what you're going to be yet.
Now you're getting there. You're calcifying. You're getting set in your ways. But change is possible. Back to 1 John chapter 3, finishing out verse 10. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. He makes it clear. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, these are decisive words. An argument could be made that all people are children of God, right? People who live across those little countries that you've never heard of and have no intention of going to, surely they are children of God. They've got the image of God stamped on them. Well, they do, but he's not just speaking about mass humanity. He's speaking of those who embrace God as a father. John the Beloved here is referencing back to something he wrote in his gospel. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In 1 John 3.10, our behavior in relation to righteousness and loving one another is the litmus test of whether we are living as sons and daughters of God or sons and daughters of Satan. Now, here's where the hope lies, okay? When your lineage changes, your behavior changes. We all could go the other way. We could try and change our behavior and hope that it would change our lineage. It doesn't work. We could pretend to be a child of God and tell enough people to decide that you were a child of God, but their decision doesn't matter, and our pretending doesn't work. No, our lineage determines our behavior. We literally act out our family tree. Our behavior doesn't dictate lineage. Our lineage dictates behavior. So if we're claiming to be of God, what are the markers he talks about in verse 10? Of course, he talks about the state of being righteous. How do we define righteousness? The world would say that righteousness is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. But by that definition, we find a lot of people who are self-righteous. When was the last time you really thought you were wrong about anything? In a biblical sense, being righteous is being in right standing with God. That makes God the arbitrator between what is right and what is wrong. And the idea of righteousness has more than one facet. There are at least three ways to look at righteousness. First, righteousness or right standing with God is given to us. The theological term is imputed. When you come to Jesus, you are not in right standing with God. And in a moment of forgiveness, he imputed to you what was not yours, righteousness. The person who was in wrong standing is now in right standing by the power of what Jesus did. This imputed righteousness is his decision. It is by the power of what he did. When he laid his life down for you and you came into alignment with his purposes for your life, there was a divine exchange, the likes which you could never have engineered on your own. Some of you like to negotiate. It's fun for you. You are what you would call a shrewd negotiator. And it's fun when you need to go buy a car or go dicker for a, an antique or something. And that's good. No matter how good you are, you could not have arranged this deal. My kids periodically get tired of their toys. And so they have these random swap meets where they meet in the living room and they all trade toys that they don't use. And there's always one of the kids that's trying to trade some kind of action figure that has the foot nod off by the dog. And nobody takes that trade. Like, nobody wants that. This is a trade like that. You are the action figure with the foot nod off. You could have never engineered trading your nature for right standing with God. 
But Jesus said, I'll put my life on the balance and the scale levels out and you become new. Having received the righteousness of Jesus, something happens to you that you could have never made happen. You become righteous. You don't just appear righteous. It actually takes place. You're a new man or a new woman. You know, one thing social media has contributed to our world is an entirely new genre of fiction called the selfie. Because this, in the selfie that we are the happiest with looks nothing like us. It's angle, lighting, filter, boom. We pulled off the impossible. We look awesome. We can make ourselves look better than we look, but it's not reality. We can't do that in real life. For all of our trying, when we stand before the Lord, or even our family for that matter, who we are is who we are, and no filter can fix that. When Jesus gave his life for us, he wasn't applying a filter. He wasn't covering up imperfections. He made a change in our standing before the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You become the righteousness of God because of that change in your lineage. Yet that's not the full story of righteousness in our life. Righteousness is given by him, but it is pursued by us. Now, last week we uh, watched the Chiefs-Bengals game. Now, we are American football novices, okay? We're a soccer family. We really don't understand the game, like many of you. I understand first down. I understand scoring. Beyond that, we're, we're pretty lost. And so don't even try to explain it. Mostly we're there for the snacks. With the way our living room is arranged, there are seats for seven people if you crowd on the couches. And when the game started, there was no one in the living room. So I went in and sat down and took a seat at one end of the couch. There are still six spots available in the living room. Four on the long couch, two on the short one. Creed, my nine-year-old, walks in. And I instantly know where he's going to sit. Not over there. Not over there. I knew he was going to get a blanket and sit right next to Dad. That's his favorite spot. Given the freedom to do whatever he wanted, he wanted to get as close to his father as he could. He pursues what it means to be a son. And I'm telling you, as a dad, I love it. God loves it when we pursue righteousness. When we pursue what it means to be a child of his. And he rewards it. Proverbs 21.21 tells us, Whoever pursues righteousness, whoever sits by the Father, and kindness will find light, righteousness, and honor. Let me tell you something. You get what you pursue. When you look for ways to act out the role of a child of God, you find yourself in the role of a child of God. You find yourself pursuing righteousness when you stop asking, Hey, what do I want? And exchange that with, What would a child of God do in this situation? You literally start thinking of yourself in family identity with God the Father. When God is your Father, it changes your reaction to everything. When you're maligned by others, God's your Father. You lose a job, but God is your Father. You struggle with loneliness, but God is your Father. You even find success 
And that is different because God is your father. And in living out of that family identity, righteousness or right relationship with God is pursued. And just like when my son sits right next to me, it makes the heart of the father glad. Righteousness is given, it is pursued, and then it is done. Not as in it is finished by us, but it is accomplished by us. Righteousness is not just a standing, it is a verb. It is easy to think of it as something that you are, even if you aren't. But more than that, righteousness is something that we do. Isaiah 56.1 Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be revealed. Doing righteousness, acting out just ways, reveals to the rest of the world what being in right standing with God looks like. Remember, as a child of God, we are most people's reference point for the character of God. There's this oft-quoted passage from the book of Amos. Amos is one of my favorite minor prophets, the reluctant farmer prophet. Multiple times he says, I didn't ask for this job, I'm just a farmer. Pop culture thinks this quote's from Martin Luther King Jr., but it's Amos. Amos 5, 4, But let justice roll down like water, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. When you read that in context, that justice and righteousness that rolls down is actually a result of our just and righteous acts. We create that fountain of justice that flows across the earth. How do I do that? Because you do righteousness with 100 little decisions every day. If righteousness is being in right relationship with the Father, then you do righteousness by acting out as one in right relationship with the Father. Decision after decision after decision. How do I respond to that? Do I speak back to that? Do I roll my eyes to that? 100 decisions about righteousness before noon. But when we act out righteousness in those small areas, we extend the authority of the Father in all areas of life with our choices. That is doing righteousness. 125 years ago, there was a pastor in Topeka, Kansas. Pastored Central Congregational Church. Building is still there. Massive stone building. His name was Charles Sheldon, and he experimented one summer with a storytelling mode of preaching. And over the winter, he developed a sermon series that melded scripture with fictional characters. And people from across Topeka would come and hear Sheldon preach because they wanted to know what happened in the story next. It was like a live podcast. The story, being told by a pastor of a local church, was ironically about a pastor of a local church who was confronted by a vagrant and challenged to live out the characteristics of being a child of God. If he was a child of God, then how would that child act? His series became published in the form of a novel called In His Steps, which you probably know by its more popular name a hundred years later, What Would Jesus Do? The general consensus among everyone from theologians to those who are lost as a goose in a hailstorm is this. Jesus would do that which would display righteousness. He would act like a child of God. He would demonstrate the works of the Father. No thinking believer argues with this. As long as you keep it vague, when it becomes concrete, that's when people start to debate. So let me just make it 
concrete for you. And let me tell you that this is not the only way to do righteousness by any means. And this is not for everybody, but it might be for you. Across the state of Kansas, there are 500 children who have zero hope of reunification with their parents. Now, I think all of us would agree that righteousness would say, or Jesus would agree, that every child deserves a home. Some of these situations are complex. Parental rights have been terminated. They're in the foster care system, which is built to reunite kids with their parents, but there are no parents to return to when this is over. Those children in the foster homes that are spread out across the state And foster care unto reunification with parents is a beautiful thing, but foster care as a permanent state is unjust. What would the righteous thing be in these cases? Some of these kids have special needs. Some have issues. Some are older than you would expect. Why would someone adopt a teenager? Because to age out of the foster care system and be thrust into adulthood at 18 with no one to lean on is unjust. What would righteousness do in that case? Now, this is a bit of a situation where our worlds merge because Zoe's House, the adoption agency that Kelsey and I started six years ago, is starting to work with these cases in Kansas and in Missouri. And for some of us, for some of you, righteousness is going to look like at least asking the question, Lord, what would you have me do as a child of God? Maybe it's adopting. Maybe it's helping a family who does. When people do hard things, they want to make sure that it matters. Would this matter? Let me explain it to you this way. On the macro level, it would matter. About 10 years ago, a group of leaders in Colorado discovered that their state had 800 kids like this. And they began asking the same question, what would a child of God do in this case? They began challenging the church across Colorado to pray about adopting these children. And literally in a few years, that list went from 800 to about 150. The state of Colorado has discovered that when there is a need, the church is a good place to ask about getting it filled. And the church is prophesying to the region a picture of righteousness. So it matters on the macro level, but it matters on the micro level. It matters to these kids who, if they have aged out of the foster care system without being adopted into a family, would probably slip through the gap and live bordering on homelessness. Or, perhaps, in 1% of those situations, would find their way into a junior college somewhere at 18 or 19 years old. And in the fall, when Thanksgiving comes around and everyone goes home, they have literally no place to go. The way of following Jesus includes righteousness imputed and righteousness done, and our lineage determines our behavior. If you really believe you have received lineage from the Father, you should have no issue acting out that relationship by caring for the poor, caring for widows, or offering any practical assistance to people. Not because you can save the world, but because you are saved from the world and you are free to operate in the spirit and the intention of your Father. Because your priorities are determined by His. If you're a son or a daughter of the Father, righteousness is apparent in your life in all three facets. What God does, how you pursue it, and how you demonstrate it. Righteousness is the proof of our lineage. Now, 
back to First John, for chapter three, verse ten. The second thing that he says differentiates children of God from children of the devil. He says, "Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." John has no chill setting. He does not back off on this idea of love of others. And he does not back off on the idea of love between those who would call themselves Christians. Western culture is highly individualized, more so now than ever. We are hyper-cognizant of our dreams, our desires, our will, our choices, our destiny, our passion. I was a child of the 80s. We were told we could do anything we wanted. That was a lie, by the way. There were lots of things we couldn't do. But we had this idea that our identity was entirely ours to frame, and no one could tell us what we could or could not be. Almost everywhere else in the world, those things are thought of more in the group sense. Even things like identity, for example, in an Asian or a Latino or a Slavic culture or a tribal culture, identity is determined in a greater portion by the collective idea of the group. You are who you seem to be to others. Now, there are problems with that, but we've gone off the charts in the other direction. Allowing people to determine their identity simply by stating that their identity is something that the rest of the world says you are not. And it affects how we interact. A couple of weeks ago, I went to Costco. Now, I don't go to Costco by choice. Um, I, there's a couple of places that I just prefer not to go. Costco, Ikea. Other than that, I'm pretty good. But I go to Costco to return something for my wife. And when I get there, I have the receipt, I have the item, and I have Kelsey's Costco card. I've got all of the things that I need. The young man at the return desk was very kind, but he looked at the card, and he looked around over his shoulder a little bit, and he said, listen, I can do this right now, but these cards are individualized. And if you bring it in again, they're probably going to lock her card. Wow, that's a serious threat. Lifetime ban from Costco. I knew I had to say something really quick. And so I looked at him right in the eyes and I said, Hey, buddy, it's 2022. What if just for today I'm identifying as her? The look on this kid's face was priceless. Because he realized that in our culture, we allow people to do that sort of thing. And even though nobody in the line would have agreed that I was her, we are so hyper-individualized that I can decide to be her and everyone has to act as if I am, even though they don't believe it. Now everyone is forced to reconcile with the gap between what is obvious and what I have decided. That's how individualized we are. That extreme individualism can detach us from loving one another because there's no shared reality. That hyper-individualism is not a biblical idea. Romans 12, 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, who are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. A mark of our lineage is how we treat the rest of the family. A child of God understands that when one part of the body hurts, the entire body hurts. We have become entirely too comfortable with the idea of amputation. Oh, that part of the body's hurting? Cut them off. This was a core issue 
for John the Beloved, because as much as he drew clear lines of distinction, he did so with a value for love. Love and clarity are never at odds. 1 John 2, 9 and 10, he writes, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. If you're going to live out your lineage, if you're going to declare you're a child of God and then act out of that, your life's got to be marked with grace and love towards one another. And I'll tell you, right now it feels a little bit like it's a fourth quarter of the school year. Spring break is over and the body of Christ is getting a D in this category. This is true in 2022 like it has never been in my life. The anger and the vitriol that people in the body feel comfortable expressing to other people in the body, or not in the body for that matter, gives me a bit of a fearful spirit in relation to our standing before God. James 3.10 says, From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things should not be. Your lineage, being a child of God, is reflected in your righteousness and your love for one another. Do you bless with the same mouth that you curse with? Which of these two things have not of God, and how do they coexist? Do you bless your father and speak ill of others? Children of God will be marked by righteousness, imputed and done, and dramatic love from one another. You say, well, Randy, where's the contrast? From the very beginning, you said there was a contrast in every chapter. It's here. Go back up to the top. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So he starts out by explaining you're going to be at odds with the world because of your lineage. Becoming a child of God sets you at a contrast to the rest of the world. But it's not the only contrast he writes about. The second one is within us. Starting in verse 2, he says, Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Here's the contrast. What we will be has not yet appeared. What we'll be is not what we are right now. Some of you live with some measure of disappointment because you were told, You could be anything. What you didn't imagine was being this age, this tired, and this broke. Or this age and this immature. Or this age and this less of whatever was in your mind when you said yes to Jesus and committed your life to serving him. You're not disappointed with Jesus, but you do not consider your life some of his best work. And you may be even saying, Jesus, I said I'd give you everything, and now here I am teaching the elementary class at this funky little church that meets in a dance studio. Was this my destiny? Is this what you called me to? No, not at all. This is just a spot on your journey. What you will be has not yet appeared. And it may not even appear in this lifetime. Coming out of the Christmas season, parents everywhere watched their kids open presents that for some reason they needed to return. Okay, maybe it was missing a piece or didn't fit or you got the wrong one. This is an inarguable fact. A packaged item, once unpackaged, will never fit in its original container. So you end up going to Target and sheepishly handing them a box with the Nerf gun sticking out, and you shrug. Sorry, it won't fit. Most of what God has for you won't fit in the container of your lifetime. Most of what he has for you in eternity will not fit in the 70 to 80 years that you can count on here on the earth. 
Here's an example, okay? In the book of Jeremiah, there's this passage that we, uh, we pull out of context all the time and make about ourselves, but let's talk a little bit about what it really says and who it was said to. The Lord is speaking to the prophet, and he's giving them instructions to share with the people of Israel who are currently in exile in Babylon. And he gives them a prophetic word that does not fit in the box provided. They're hundreds of miles from home, living in subjection, if not outright slavery, and thinking, hmm, this is not how I thought my life would turn out. And along comes the words of the prophet in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You can hear the exiles cheer, but everybody who heard that died in Babylon. In fact, more people were later exported from Israel to Babylon to join and replace them. The exile of the Jews to Babylon took place in two waves, and this word of the Lord came between those two waves. It was going to get worse before it got better. What they would be had not yet been seen and might not even have been believed had they not seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The plan of God that is written for your life will not fit in the 70-year allotment. No one other than Jesus had as many prophecies about his destiny than David, the shepherd turned working musician, turned warrior, turned king. But even King David didn't see the fulfillment of most of his prophetic words on this side of eternity. God had bigger plans for David than what could occur in his human life. Jesus himself did not receive the recognition he deserved according to his father's declarations about him. What you will be is not yet seen. Here is the gold standard of contrasts, though. When he appears, we will be like Jesus. Yes, there's goodness in this life, but there is greatness in the life to come. Hope in that fact changes everything. 1 John 3, verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes, everyone who leans into this, everyone who believes this idea that they will be more than they see right now, purifies himself as he is pure. Even before we receive all that is in his heart to receive for us, hoping for it purifies our lives. Hope is the deposit that is proof of our lineage. Hope is what helps us do righteousness, and hope is what helps us love our brother. Hope's our signal to God that we trust him. And hoping in him, we start to become like him in this life, and for all eternity. Thanks for hanging out this week. We apologize again for the web stream. It is what it is. Join us next week live if you can. That works every time. Have a great day.